Hey guys, Montel here, and thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Free Thinking with Montel. And you know what? I am so excited to have the guest that I have on today. And before I introduce him, just want to chat a little bit about, you know, life. I mean, let's just talk a little bit for a moment about life. You know, life can throw us all curveballs. I uh, will never forget the curveball that it threw me back in 2000 when I went to a doctor's office and the doctor said, dude, you have MS. And you know what? I'm so sorry to tell you this, but because of people like yourself, I mean, you know, people in your category, African-American males um, normally do really, really badly and poorly with MS. This is the way this guy was talking to me. And uh, I hate to tell you, but you're probably going to be in a wheelchair in, you know, two to three years, maybe five, maybe five to 10 at the most. But, you know, you can probably look forward to the fact that, uh, look forward to, he says, look forward to the fact that, uh, you know what, uh, this is debilitating and there's really nothing you can do about it. And he walked out of the room and I remember, you know, my heart, my brain, everything just sunk to the floor because I was literally just given a dead sentence. And, you know, he came back in and said, well, here, I can do a couple more little tests to make sure I validate this, but I'm positive you have MS. So we need to get you to a doctor that you can start talking to about maybe possible treatment protocols. And, you know, there's only three treatments out there, but you'll probably qualify for one of them. And I, I literally wanted to punch this guy right dead in his mouth. Um, took the information, and um, I remember I left that day, uh, and it was really weird because I had flown out. I could give you a little background. I, was, I flew out to Utah to shoot an episode of then a show that was called Touched by an Angel. And I happened to be staying with a doctor friend, so I flew out, this is the night before, I was supposed to start shooting on Monday, and I got there on a Friday, and my doctor friend sent me to a doctor on Saturday morning because he looked at me and said, man, you know, you really need to see something. And I had, you know, just really had, had started in what was called an episode or a bout or, you know, an exacerbation had just begun that Friday at about one o'clock while I was on the airplane flying across country and it threw me for a loop. I mean, everything about me, my balance was off. I was shaking and I had extreme neuropathic pain in my feet, my lower extremities. And so my doctor friend um, said, I'm going to call a guy I know and I'm going to send you to a doctor tomorrow morning. And the doctor came in on Saturday morning and saw me. And like I said, I wanted to punch this guy right in his face when he told me what he told me. And I then had to, suck it up as hard as I could to go to work on that Monday morning um, and start filming a episode of a you know, dramatic series that was on television at the time. And I sh shot for five days before I went and sought out a second opinion, which, you know, every single day after shooting, I was on the phone calling back East and calling the doctors and friends of mine and finally got an appointment at Harvard, went to see a really, really one of the top doctors in the field. And uh, my diagnosis was reconfirmed, but um, his bedside manner was entirely different, I'll tell you that. And so, you know, rather than succumb to the idea that everything about my life in the future was going to be hopeless, um I recognized that, you know, there was a glimmer of hope and that glimmer of hope was really in me. And when I heard our guest's story, you know, I was really moved because it 
it sounded similar. Now, look, you know, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that every one of us who gets a diagnosis for a debilitating or chronic illness or deadly illness is going to be able to beat that illness through your own mental constitution. However, I am going to tell you that how you deal with, how you cope with, and how you feel about yourself and about your diagnosis and about your ability to challenge the norm, challenge, you know, the prescription. I mean, let's, 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 let's make sure we understand one thing very clearly. Doctors are not God. And I'm going to say that over and over and over again. Doctors are not gods. If they were gods, none of us would be ill. So the truth of the matter is they are just people who've gone to school, learned, studied, put you know some information in their brains to resuscitate or to regurgitate back to us when they come to a conclusion. But I've yet to see one of them who has a crystal ball and the crystal ball be 100% right. I've never seen one. And if you know one, please, I would love to hear from you. Tell me who that doctor is. I'll get them on this podcast so they can start healing everybody in the world. Maybe start healing the world's problems too. Because the truth of the matter is there is no one answer that fits all of us. I don't care what the diagnosis is that you get. I think that there's information out there and there are ways for you to deal with it. And that's what really moved me so much about our guest today. I mean, I guess today is a 46-year-old endurance athlete and a Parkinson's advocate. He received a diagnosis of young-onset Parkinson's at only the age of 27 years old. And doctors told him that he would need to be use a wheelchair in just 15 to 20 years. And after extensive research, he found that exercise was the only treatment proven to slow or even halt the progression of Parkinson's disease. And since then, he has used fitness to battle his illness and collected an incredibly Impressive record of being a four-season veteran of American Ninja Warrior and has competed in one ultra marathon, 16 marathons, 100 half marathons, numerous 5Ks, 10Ks, and triathlons. He and his wife have raised close to $500,000 for Parkinson's research, and he is best known for showcasing his feats of athleticism on his social media to serve as inspiration for his fans and those facing similar health challenges. Jimmy Choi. Thanks so much. Welcome for free thinking, my friend. Thanks for coming on the show today, sir. Oh, thank you. It's it's an honor to be on the show, and thank you for the opportunity. And you know what? Before we all get started, I, I do want to say something real quick, and that is, I, you know, I, I know you're uh, a, a veteran. I want to thank you for your service, and I know you're a great advocate for all veterans, you know, um, and 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 those who are still serving. So, thanks to to, to you and and everybody. Uh, we enjoy the freedoms that we do. So I wanted to say thank you before we get started. Oh, man, thank you so much, sir. But thank you for what you are doing now. Thank you for, you know, stepping up to the plate and, and you know, coming forward. You know, unfortunately, there are so many of us out there and so many people who are suffering in some way where they're suffering in silence and don't recognize that just by speaking out, telling their truth, how inspirational they can be to so many others. And, you know, you've done this. I mean, I know, uh, you know, got some personal friends who have some kids who have been, you know, following you, I guess, on your TikTok and on a couple of other of your social media things uh, long before we even, you know, I even knew who you were. And so know that you are reverberating, my friend. 
Thank you. Thank you very much. You know, and, and everything that you were just saying about your diagnosis and, and everything, it's, it's, it's so close to home because, um, I, you know, I, I too wanted to, wanted to punch my initial neurologist in the face for, for the bedside manner. Uh, but you know, that, and that's the thing, right? You, you, you can, you can take your, your situation and you can turn it into something, something bad, uh, and go into isolation and go into, you know, and just, just, just sort of climb up, right? Or you can go the other way. Now, I've done both because, you know, the difference between your story and mine is you knew right away that you, you can, you, you have a choice. Um, when I was told that I had Parkinson's, um, I was told that, you know, get your affairs in order. Your family's going to take care of you for the rest of your life. Um, and that's it. So I left just being, just deflated absolutely deflated. And I spent the next eight years in that state. And, um, I tell you what, you know, if I didn't start telling my story, I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be where I am if I didn't start sharing my story. Well, my friend, let me make sure I, I, maybe I, I gave partly the wrong impression. I will tell you that, you know, that diagnosis sent me on almost a year and a half journey into the abyss. Um, you know, though I kept trying my best, I had to go to work. I didn't want to lose my job. You know, I was afraid yeah. to tell anybody. I, uh, I literally didn't even share it with my family for about six months um, because I was afraid. And, you know, the stigma around a disease like yours and mine, you know, uh, makes it hard for you to want to share with people. And, you know, what they don't tell you about it is that chemically in your brain and in my brain, there are things that are going on that cause chemical depressions, you know? And so, you know, and then it's exacerbated because as you get depressed, you exacerbate more and more of those chemicals and more and more of those feelings. And so it's kind of like a, a, you know, cyclic spiral on it, of its own. Um, you know, you were able to understand i guess well why don't you t take us on that little journey first off where, where, let's back up and talk about who you are and where you came from my friend let's uh let's yeah. back up to the beginning for a minute you were um born in taiwan and you're yep. the immigrated to the united states when you were 10 years old yep that's correct i always like to say that just like everything in the 70s i was made in taiwan <laughs> uh, yeah my family and i we immigrate we, uh, we immigrated here to the united states uh, just right into the chicago area um, when I was just 10 years old, we came um, and I spoke zero English at the time. So uh, it was a it was a it was a pretty big tra transition for me and my brothers and, and of course, my parents. Um, but, uh, you know, they they did it for us. They they wanted us to have an education here in the United States. And, and uh, I'm, I'll be forever be grateful for that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And you played sports in school. You were active. Yep. You know. One, you know, one of the things growing up, uh, trying to learn English here in the United States, there, there are a couple of things that, that I can do that sort of becomes a universal language, right? One of them was, one of them is sports. Um, so, you know, playing baseball is something that, uh, that I enjoyed as a kid growing up. And then ultimately I got into wrestling and then later I got into some football. But when I first moved to the U.S., playing baseball, that's kind of, that's a sport everybody knows around the world. And I was pretty good at it, so people accepted me because I was a decent player, and and that's how we communicated initially. It was through sports, um, so it, it's definitely it was yeah, it was it was something that I I loved doing, and it allowed me to sort of integrate into the into my community. And what did you want to do when you graduated from high school? 
<laughs> you know, when I graduated, I actually wanted to be a lawyer, but that didn't that didn't pan out um, so much. Uh, I, I found uh, I, I found a, a much more better calling in, in, in technology. So I ended up uh, studying both technology and finance in school. And um, when I graduated, I my first job out of school was uh, was a computer programmer. Oh, that's great. That's great. So you're marching along smartly. I guess I, I, I didn't get a lot of information about when you met your wife, uh, but you're in your early 20s and you're marching along. You got your first job. Did you move? Did you stay at home? What did you do? Yeah, we, you know, I've been in the Chicago area all um, all my life. But uh, as soon as I graduated, I, I, I left um, my parents' home and, and um, I, I, I bought my own house when uh, even with my first job. I met my wife actually in high school. We were high school sweethearts, um, and we got married really shortly after uh, after she graduated from college. I, I graduated uh, a couple of years before her, um, and then you know we we just continued dating. And by the year two thousand, uh, twenty one years ago, we said uh, I, we said I do. Ah, that's great. So then. You know, you're moving along. Did you have kids first, or what's going on? No, no. We, uh, you know, we, we we were both very driven in our careers, so we just, you know, we we that became our priority, career and traveling the world. Um, you know, so from that from that first time for for those first few years when we were dying, when when we got married, um, that's all we did it was we worked and then we worked hard and then on times that we get to get away for vacation we played hard we traveled the world we went to europe we went back to asia we went to you know we we went all over the world um and then uh, we didn't have our first child until 7 years later in 2007 my daughter Karina and this was right before your diagnosis um so yeah i was diagnosed actually in 2003 uh, oh, okay so three, I'm sorry. yeah yeah, three years after after we got we got married, uh, you know things. We like I said, we were active, uh, and and I was still active. I played a lot of golf um, at that time, and um, you know I, I love my wife. I, I was, I'm a very lucky man. She back then she 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 didn't mind me playing five rounds of golf a week, and I would always walk and carry my clubs. So you know a little bit of stiffness and rigidity. You know it's, I've always attributed to just soreness from from playing golf, right? And stress on the job, I, I would feel these these little little twinges and these little twitches here and there. I just thought it was stress from the job. Everything that I was feeling in terms of changes to my body can be attributed to everyday life. So I kind of just wrote it off, right, and didn't think didn't think much of it. And how long did you kind of write that off? So um, make sure people understand that maybe they you know when you start sensing something maybe awry. That's when you need to go and see a doctor, I think, right? Would you say? Yeah, I mean, it, as soon as you're, as soon as you, I always tell people now that as soon as you are noticing something that's off, you need to go see a specialist, right? Get some information, um, try to get a diagnosis if you can. The more you know, the faster you know, the better it is. Um, but you know, I now that just thinking back, and my symptoms started when I was in college. One of the reasons I stopped playing baseball is because I kept throwing the ball straight into the ground. You know, I couldn't release the ball in time when my brain told my hands to release the ball. It wouldn't release. So one of the reasons I stopped playing was because I, I just simply couldn't throw anymore. Um, but, you know, it's really yeah. interesting, interesting that you say that that way because it's, you know, I, I probably 
should have been diagnosed myself also right when I graduated from college. Yeah. And very interesting, you know, I I was a, you know, four-sport player and when I was in high school also, you know, I played football, played basketball, played baseball, played, ran track. I was a pole vaulter. Um, got into college. I was at the Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. I was in the military and, um, you know, it, it was really, I, I can't even explain it other than to say that I just started feeling weird things in my feet and I started feeling weird things in my side. And I started to notice that, you know, here I started in high school in the 10th grade on the varsity basketball team. Mm-hmm. But when I was in college, I couldn't get myself, you know, my first two years I was playing basketball all the time. But then I started noticing in my second two years of college that I didn't go play basketball. And I didn't go because in my mind, I didn't like the way my body was feeling while I was playing it. Yeah. Now, I did, but I just wrote that off to, you know, I'm getting too old I'm, or I'm, I'm, you know, lifting too many weights and I'm doing things that counter intuitive to basketball. And yeah. I started noticing that, you know, when I was in high school, I could dunk a, you know, a, 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 a volleyball, but I couldn't dunk anymore when I was in college. And I was, that's weird. And, you know, um, I couldn't coordinate my body to jump that high anymore. But I just wrote it off and didn't say anything about it. And then right before I graduated from the Naval Academy, I had what was a significant episode or about that got misdiagnosed. So I went my entire 20 years in the military being misdiagnosed. Every year and a half, I would have some weird little feeling, go to see a doctor, uh, you know, and I, I was a really big weightlifter. I should say when I said big weightlifter, I was a powerlifter. So, you know, I go see a doctor and the doctor said, well, look at all the fucking weight scoops in my mouth. Look at all the weight you keep putting on your back. You know what I mean? Stop that. And I was a big squatter. I used to squat like 500 plus. So, you know, stop putting that weight on your back and you probably wouldn't have these issues. You probably compressed your spine. You probably compressed your spine. That's like they kept saying this to me. And so I just believed it. And, um, but you're right. You know, you should listen to your body. You should listen to yourself and understand that sometimes those kind of significant changes have a lot more to do with an underlying condition and it might just have to do with aging, right? Absolutely. And, you know, it's, and, and you mentioned it already, right? Doctors aren't, they're, they're, they're not gods. Um, they, they can, they can make observations and then they can tell you what they think they have. They can, they can give you a diagnosis, but ultimately we are the ones that are living with it. We are the ones that know what we feel. Um, and, at the end of the day, we are going to be the experts of the disease or the, um, the, the ailment or the adversity that we live with, right? Um, well, doctors can be good guides, and, and, and there are many, many doctors out there that are very good at what they do. Um, it's, at the end of the day, the ones that are giving you the diagnosis and the advice, they aren't the ones living with the disease. So you, you, have, to be, you have to be your own advocate. You have to be your own um, it is up to you. If you want to live well, it is up to you to decide how you're going to make, how are you going to create your own treatment? Who's going to be in your care team? So, you know, it's, it's, I think, uh, you know, having, having speaking to, to different people and, and, and just the, the whole entire community around chronic illnesses, uh, it's a very familiar story is that the people who do the best um, have that mindset of, I need to be my own uh, advocate, and, uh, and 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 my treatment is is for me. It's not it's not going to be for everyone. You know, I always tell people that ask me, uh, you know, how can I 
create my own exercise regimen that's like yours. I was like, well, you can't because I've been doing this for, ten, for, for more than 10 years now. You're just starting out. You're not going to exercise like me. So figure out what works for you and start from there and then build your way forward. Absolutely. And, you know, again, you let's go back to that diagnosis. And, you know, the first seven, eight years, you um, literally almost succumbed to the isolation and that depression and that anger, did you not? I did. I did. You know, much, much, like, much like you, when I was given the diagnosis, I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell my wife um, until I had to start taking medication. Um, and medication helped me at that time to the point where I can hide my symptoms, right? And I can hide my symptoms, just mask them. It, I, I was hiding it, but regression is still happening. But just like you said, these changes happen so slowly and, and over time that um, my body is making adjustments to it. So for me, it doesn't feel like progression is happening that quickly. But for somebody that hasn't seen me in, say, two or three months, immediately they know something is wrong. So they're going to ask, you know, hey, what's going on? Are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. But I did that for eight years. And, you know, I didn't tell my story. I didn't tell people what was happening. And there's always that, that elephant in the room. You know, when you walk into a room, people know there's something not right. But they don't want to be rude and they don't want to ask. And, and, and I don't want to trouble people with my issues. So then you kind of just end up keeping that stuff bottled inside. And then if you see your friends every once a couple of months and they ask you to do things and you're like, oh, you know, I, I can't because I just don't feel like it. But in reality, I, I couldn't because I couldn't move so well. You can see how over time, three or four times they're asking you, always saying, no, they're, gonna, they're not going to stop asking you, right? right. When, they stop, when they stop asking you, you're, you kind of fall into this self-isolation. So, you know, well, my friends don't care about me anymore and, and, and I'm, I'm lonely. And, and, but in reality, I'm, I'm doing it to myself. Um, so ultimately just eight years of, of pushing, like un unconsciously pushing friends and family away, um, because just because my body wasn't feeling right and, and I was embarrassed, right. There's, there's that, that, that feeling of shame, um, you know, just, just being, just having tremors in public, uh, people staring at you that there is that feeling of shame. Um, so after my initial eight years, um, depression set in and and I started gaining weight because I was very inactive. Um, I started walking with a cane because I fell a lot. And then on top of that, I'm not moving well. I don't want people to see me with my cane. I'd stop doing things. I, I mean, I, I gained a lot of weight. I was up to 240 pounds at one point. I was walking with a cane and the anger, just, just all that buildup. I started just snapping at my family for no good reason. I started yelling at my kids. Remember, my daughter was born in 2007. My son was born in 2009. They were just babies. Um, mm. and, and, and I could see myself just floating out of my body, kind of have that outer body experience. And I could see myself standing over this two-year-old little girl, screaming at her because she spilled some milk, right? right. Kids are going to do that. And I absolutely hated what I, what I saw, um, but I couldn't, I couldn't reach out and I couldn't stop myself from, from doing it. It's just just outbursts of, of anger, you know. And what what really made you hit? You, you said that what made you hit rock bottom was when you fell down a flight of stairs carrying your son one time, right? Yeah, he was only ten months old, man, and we were we were at the top of the stairs at at, at home, and you know I figured, you know what, I've got my son in one arm, I'm, I, I can make my way down the stairs. I don't need my cane because I've got the railing on you know on the other side. I can use my arm, 
my other arm for. Um, unfortunately, I was wrong. And, and you know, my, my leg didn't cooperate with a step down the stairs. And my brain thought my leg had moved, but my leg hasn't, hadn't, didn't really move. So I, I tripped and I fell with my son in my, in, in my arms down an entire flight of stairs. It was about 10 steps. Um, so, it, yeah, so it wasn't a short fall. Uh, but it was at that moment, you know, I kept him above my body the best I could. Uh, I took the brunt of the fall. What was the worst part was, I mean, it's bad enough that I had to carry my son and falling down entire stairs. The worst part is that my, my, my daughter and my wife witnessed the whole thing. And when she came over to grab my son and just looking up at the horror on their faces, um, it it, it clicked. Something clicked. Said, "Look at, look at their, look at your family's faces. Look what you've done to your, to, to your son. You, you've become a a, uh, a hazard, and you've become a burden to this family, um, just by carrying your son. And look at the horror on your daughter's face. Um, look at the horror on, on on your wife's face. Instead of helping my wife raise our family, I, I've given her more to." To, to handle. So, you know, it was at that moment that I, I decided something, something had to change. You know, I, I knew I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, couldn't change the fact that I had Parkinson's, but maybe I can think about the way I approach living with the disease. And then you got on a flight and saw a copy of a magazine sitting in the It's really, yeah, stories are, are so, so interesting because I was on a plane and literally saw a copy of a, one of airline magazines that had um, some information about a treatment protocol that was experimental at the time. It still is experimental today. Um, that literally is what turned me around. I mean, I, I went the first, again, just like you, seven, eight years, you know, trying my best now. You know, after my year and a half, I decided one of the things I did that, that I think was the best thing I did was I wanted to learn everything I could learn about MS. So I became, had this voracious appetite of going to the, you know, back then there was no internet. So I wasn't doing research on the internet. I was literally, you know, grabbing books, trying to get copies of books, trying to go to the library and did as much as I could research wise to learn everything I could about the disease. And then, you know, I, like you found out that, you know, our diet education and our, our diet and, and you know, um, um, sorry, uh, our exercise and our mental state had as much impact or could have as much impact on the illness as, you know, any of the medications that were out at the time. So I tried to learn as much as I could about that. And then it was literally almost, you know, those 10 years after my diagnosis that I was sitting on an airplane and I look at the pocket. Uh, really, literally, a, a person from the back of the plane gave a magazine to. I had already come out that publicly and said that I had MS, and somebody in the back of the plane grabbed the same magazine out of their their pocket and said, "You should go give that to Mr. Williams." And you know, I looked at it and it it said, you know, this really strange treatment protocol that was having significant impact on MS. And I read that, and that's what literally helped to double turn my life around. You know, so you read this article in an airline magazine that was talking about what running? Yeah, it was. Uh, it was another gentleman, um, and actually, just like you said, it's things happen and they just kind of happen. 
but this magazine was turned almost you know it was turned to the page uh, of the article and uh, it was it was actually a runner's world magazine and I picked it up and and it was there's a small article about a gentleman running a marathon and he has Parkinson's and just reading that article it it it, it inspired me to, to to try to do more you know and you know since that moment that I fell down the stairs with my son I when I one of the first things that I did in vowing to do better for myself was for the first time, really educating myself on actually what Parkinson's is. Because for that first eight years, I took that pill and that's all I did, right? I never really studied the disease. I, I can't tell you, I think that is the most important thing. I mean, people just don't understand. Yeah. Again, I think we sit back and we want to have somebody shovel stuff at us or feed us stuff rather than understand that the power of our own mind is just as powerful as anyone else's. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't say it in the way to disparage doctors where I say they're not gods, but they're not, they're no different than you and I, they just want to school. So right. go to school. And if you go to school, you'll find out as much as they know about what they claim they know about you. And honestly, you said it perfectly. They are living you. They are in your body. They are talking about what they think is going on in your body, but they have no idea what it means when you say, dude, I got this really weird feeling in my hip. Well, you know what the weird feeling is. How the hell do they know what a weird feeling is? They can't know what that is. So I think you're nailing it right now when you say the most important thing, I think knowledge, knowledge, knowledge is king. And the more and more we know, the better, better it will serve us. But go ahead. Yeah, it's, you know, so... That's one of, one of the first steps. When I saw that article, I'm like, you know what? This if this guy can do it. You know, why can't I? Now, I knew I wasn't going to be able to run a marathon at that moment. Because remember, I was still overweight. You know, I'm, I, 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 I've never really ran distance, you know, playing, come on, playing baseball. We run 90 feet at a time, right? Playing football, the max is 100 yards at a time. Um, and, to, to, you know, I, I was a lineman, actually, when I played football. So we ran five yards at a time, max, right? But, you know... But just reading that someone living with the disease can be doing these incredible things physically, uh, physically, even though this is a, a this is a movement disorder, it was was incredible. It kind of it, it piqued my interest. So you know, I, I I looked around and I I started doing a lot of research. I started doing a lot of um, clinical trials because that's how it's going to help. I'm not smart enough to figure to, to to find a cure myself. I certainly didn't have the means to fund it myself. So that. The next best thing is for me to give up my body to clinical trials and research, right? Um, and I tell you what, you know, going back to the whole mental aspect of, of living with a chronic illness, this gives you a, an idea into my state of mind at the time, right? Remember, I just just fallen down the stairs with my son, and I was, you know, I, I was still dealing with a lot of anger. And this is just a quick, just the beginning of the turnaround. One of the reasons I decided to take. Uh, so many chances with all of these clinical trials is number one, there was a very selfish reason, right? Number one, if there was a cure out there and one of these clinical trials was the cure, I would be the first to get it. Right. And number two, if it wasn't the cure and some of these trials are pretty risky involve procedures and, 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 and surgery and all these things and taking pills that aren't tested. Right. Um, it's risky, but if, if anything should go wrong, if anything should go wrong and I happen to, to die, because of these treatments, this is the state of my mind at the time is that it wouldn't be so bad. It wouldn't be living with Parkinson's. Right. So, so that's kind of, that kind of gives you an idea into, into the, the, the whole state of mind I was in 
it's I was desperate. It's basically the, the bottom line was I was desperate. But starting to see other people and starting to read their stories about how they're handling it provided me with a lot of uh, inspiration and a lot of motivation that, you know, these people are doing something about this and they can live their best version of their life with Parkinson's. Why can't I? Why can't I? Right. So, you know, I started doing every little thing that, that every, every story that I would read, I would take a little, try to take a little bit of information from that, from what they learned and try to place that into my own life. And this particular instance was exercise. This guy was running. He was running a lot. So I wasn't going to be able to do a marathon just yet. This is in 2012, but maybe I can run enough to make a 5k or, um, or a 10k, whatever, and just start slow and build from there. And that's exactly and let's, what I about, let's, let's talk about that starting slow. You started slow by walking around the block with your family, right? Yep. I started walking around just with my family. Um, when I found that, when I, when I found the exercise was actually helping, um, and this was in clinical trial settings. And so I started doing a lot of that on my own at home. And I was doing things like walking around the block with my family. And when I felt comfortable enough, I would leave my cane at home and do and try to go without my cane, see how far I can get. And I'm a competitive guy, right? Because I played, I, I played, I've always, always have been competitive growing up, play sports and things like that. So if today I made it once around the block. Tomorrow I'm going to see if I can get it one and a half times around the block. I'm just going to try to beat myself, basically. So once became twice, and then I would leave my cane at home. And then the more comfortable with the way that I move the more I would try to do. So next thing you know, that those blocks turn into miles, right? And walking turn into jogging and jogging turn into running. So it just kind of kept escalating from there. Every day I wanted to do more, just a little bit more than yesterday. And that became my mantra. Even to today, 10 years later, um, what am I doing today that's going to be better than yesterday? Right. That's fabulous, man. So you went on to run a 5K, and then that 5K turned into 10K, and then a couple of months later, that turned into marathon. Yeah, uh, yeah, 5K, 10K, half marathon, and then marathon. Uh, so, and it's all in the same year, right? In 2012, 5K in April, uh, 10K in May, and a half marathon in September. And I knew as soon as I crossed that finish line at the half marathon that I was going to run the Chicago Marathon. Um, it, but it was just a month later and tell you what, this is, you know, I've, I've, I've had that, that rock bottom moment with my son, but here comes my aha moment. And, you know, we talked about this already, or you talked about this already is talking about sharing stories and things like that. Right. In order for me to run the Chicago marathon with only a month before the race, it was sold out. So I didn't know that because I never ran a marathon before, um, but the only way in was through a charity partner. And this is when I found the Michael J. Fox foundation, uh, as a charity partner. They had, I called them up and I said, hey, I know it's close to the marathon. Do you happen to have any bibs left? They said, we've got one bib, Jimmy, if you wanted, it's yours. Um, but all you have to do is to run in the race is you have to raise $2,000 uh, for the foundation and, and that bib is yours. And I said, let's do it. So for the first time, what happens when people go and raise money? Uh, you know, you, you reach out to your friends and family, right? So for the first time since my diagnosis, I really had to tell people why I was crazy enough, number one, crazy enough to run a marathon and why I was doing it. Um, and for the first time, I shared broadly outside of my immediate family circle and my immediate close friend circle that, that I have Parkinson's 
And these are the things, these are the reasons why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because uh, exercise is helping me better manage my medication. It's helping me better manage my symptoms when I am off medication. Um, it's also teaching me that I'm a lot stronger than I can by doing a little bit more each day. Um, and really sharing that story for the first time, it showed me that 99% of the people out there are positive. They're supportive. They jumped in and says, you know, hey, Jimmy, good go. You know, nice job. Keep it going. We're behind you 100%. And that feeling is the complete opposite of all of that isolation that I've had up to this point, right? Now all, I've got- the, all the fear of people turning, you know, looking down on you would turn into a positive, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and remember that I talked about that shame factor, right? All of a sudden it's gone because these are still, these are my friends. These are, you know, and the further out of the circle that I went in terms of the closeness of people, the further out, I'm seeing the same thing. It's just support. Support came from every angle. I've had people reaching out to me from when I published my, my fundraising page um, and then people have access to it through the internet. I was getting messages from people saying that, hey, you know, you're, 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 you are, you're, you're inspirational. You're motivating me to, to, to do these things on my own. And I mean, come on, that, that feeling of I'm actually making a difference, right, uh, is, is what was incredible. And, and it's telling me that actually sharing my story is helping not only myself mentally, but it's helping others as well. So in that one month's time, when I decided to run the Chicago Marathon, I ended up raising more than five thousand uh, dollars for for research. I I opened up my story to my friends and family. I've connected with other people within the Parkinson's community, sharing stories now of how learning how they're living with the disease and sharing how I'm living with the disease. So we're helping each other out, and I did that all in one month. And my big aha moment was that in that one month's time, I did more for myself for the Parkinson's community, for my family, than I did in the first eight years of my diagnosis combined. Wow. Wow. And I mean, you've gone on to run an ultra marathon. How long was that ultra marathon? It was 50 miles. And, wow. and you know, <laughs> check that off the box. I'm never doing that again. <laughs> <laughs> you've run multiple triathlons? Yeah, um, you know, we've uh, I've done triathlon distances anywhere, you know, anywhere from from sprint um, all the way up to half iron distances. Um, and uh, I've done 16 marathons um, and every one of these things that I did, all of my, you know, 100 plus half marathons, every single one of them, I, I raise money or try to raise awareness um, for Parkinson's research. I guess you were the first person with Parkinson's to complete a 100 mile bike ride in under five hours. Go ahead with your bad self, my friend. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, and this was at the Davis Finney Foundation. Um, and uh, they, you know, Davis Finney was an Olympic cyclist back in the 80s. He's a gold medalist. He developed Parkinson's or diagnosed with Parkinson's some years later. And um, they have a, a cycling event every year. And that, in 2016, I joined their team. And uh, every year, they've up to this point, they've been trying to get someone else, uh, a person living with Parkinson's, to complete a five-hour bike ride in under uh, I'm sorry, a 100-mile bike ride in under five hours. That's that's an average of 20 miles per hour on that bike over, that's crazy. over, over that distance. Um, and, you know, I, I can't take all, all the credit for it. It's, it's, it, it was a team effort. Um, the, the, the team, they rallied around me, helping me with training, uh, helping, they, they guided me along the route. Uh, they protected me from, from elements, wind, and things like that to help me get through. But at the end of the day, um, you know, we raised a lot of money. Uh, I, I, I was able... 
I was able to complete that task, which is which is hard even for you know for for anybody. I forget people with Parkinson's, but for a healthy, able-bodied person, it's it's tough. It's a tough task, um, and that gave me a lot of confidence to keep pushing forward from that moment on. Now, now you and your family used to watch American Ninja Warrior together. But was it not your daughter that kind of convinced you to go ahead and take a stab at it? Yeah, she she loved the show. I mean, ever since she was like seven years old, she watched the show. And she started climbing on things all over our walls in our house. And it's driving us nuts. And, and uh, But every year, every season, it would come on. She goes, yeah, you should try it. Because remember, my daughter, when I started running, my daughter was just, just two years old when I started running. So from what she can remember, I've always been fit. I've always been able to run marathons, right? From, And she's, to her, I, I think I've, I've always been Superman. So when she sees, you know, American Ninja Warrior, she goes, well, why can't you do it? You know, and I would give her all the excuses in the book, right? I have Parkinson's. I have balance. Are you kidding me? I'm a runner. I don't have upper body strength. All, every single excuse I can think of. And But she was persistent. She kept at it, at it. And then, you know, American Ninja Warrior, they showcase a lot of people uh, battling through the adversities and, and, and Karina was watching the show. Every time somebody has a story where, you know, they prosthetics for legs and getting up on the obstacles and, and trying to run balance obstacles, she's like, Dad, what's your excuse? You know, mm. <laughs> I mean, I, I ran out of excuses after the third or fourth year. She's begging me. And, and, and so, you know, what? I said, you know what? I'm going to do it just to shut you up. I'm going to do it. Um, but I surprised myself. I realized that, you know, I was giving her all these excuses and, and really wasn't, wasn't doing what I'm preaching, which is just go out there and, and, and do your best and try to do better than yesterday. Um, but when I started training and I started com uh, competing and, and started the trial process, I realized that, heck, you know, there, there's something here. I'm, I'm, I'm moving better. Um, but I gave it a shot and that completely not expecting to make it on. And, but they gave me a chance that first year. It was 2017. That's my first time. And then I've been competing every single year ever since. That's fabulous, my friend. Now, you know, you recently, uh, in one of your TikTok posts, you shared your frustration with your struggle to take your medication since, you know, the pill for Parkinson's is, uh, you know, so tiny. Can you tell us about how your community kind of stepped in to create an innovative Parkinson-friendly pill bottle? Yeah. Um, you know, I always show these, uh, the videos that I show on TikTok and on, on, on Instagram and social media is, is usually some, some me doing something physical, right? Breaking, you know, a push-up world record or breaking a burpee world record. Um, but I also show, take time to show the downside of living with Parkinson's. I don't want people to think that it's, you have Parkinson's and you can do all these things, but they also need to see that the things that I show physically, anybody can do, anybody as long as you put your time in to train and to put your effort into it. But things that everyday people can do without training, like buttoning a shirt, like tying your shoes, and even taking a pill out of the bottle, um, these are things that people don't need to put in hours of training to do. These are things that I have trouble with, even though I, I, can, I can be an American Ninja Warrior and I can break world records and things like that. Um, so I, I always share these frustrations, and this time I was, I was having an off- off cycle uh, with my medication and I was reaching for my medication and these pills are so tiny that anybody with tremors in their hands are going to have issues trying to isolate a single pill. Um, so I decided to take my camera out and film that and share it with uh, my followers on TikTok. It says, you know what? 
these are the struggles that that I have. So it's not always rainbows and puppy tails on my side of the world. But what was amazing was that you know people saw that video and they had ideas and started putting ideas in the comment. But one gentleman, Brian Aldridge, um, had an idea for a pill bottle, uh, and it was so simple. And he created his own video and he taught himself how to design and he's a music he's a music video producer by the way so he's not even an engineer so he had this, this idea in his head and he taught himself how to design this pill bottle and he put it up on tiktok himself and said hey i've got this design but i have no way to create this can someone else help right i've got the design someone else help and then next thing you know the 3d printing community jumped in and said oh i like this idea i'm going to go ahead and take this and i'm going to print it on my 3d printer Next thing you know, these bottles are being printed and we were getting these bottles in people's hands. I, I would come home and there would be bottles sent to me through the mail. There would be a bottle left on my doorstep. So, hey, Jimmy, I printed it out for you. Check it out. And then from there, amazing, amazing things happened. And this all happened within a week or two. Next thing you know, we were sharing ideas. I had the bottle pill bottle in hand. We would provide feedback. I would share the pill bottle with, with others. Uh, and they would do the same thing. They, as in Brian Aldrich himself and, and the 3D printing community. Um, and then David Exler, who's, a, who's, who's been a, pivot, uh, a, a big part of this, started print printing these. And he started sending these for free at his own cost um, to people who simply just make a donation to the Michael J. Fox Foundation. And he would send, this to, send these bottles to them, up to 50 bottles he would send. And um, this community came in. And now we're up to version six of the bottle. Um, because we kept making uh, improvements to it. And I actually have the bottle with me right here. I mean, just you can see how simple it is, right? Now, what's great about this is right now, all my pills are in here. You can hear it rattling a little bit. Um, but if I, right now, it's closed. So if I turn it over, nothing falls out. But now I can open the pill bottle, okay? And nothing would fall out as well, even though the pill bottle is open. But if I want to isolate a single pill, all I got to do is turn, you see this little, black arrow here. I just turn that arrow to line up with this chute. And just like that, I've got one pill isolated. Perfect though. That's like amazing. That. And, and so if I'm out in public, I don't have to fiddle around, right? Just wondering what are people thinking? This guy, what's this guy doing? Why is he, is it, it could, because some people can think that I'm, I'm on recreational drugs, right? right? going through withdrawal or something like that, right? So now I can just make that turn and then I can just throw it back like a shot and I won't miss my mouth. Um, even removing that little bit of anxiety, this pill bottle, so simple, but even removing that little bit of anxiety in public is huge from a mental aspect for, my, for people with Parkinson's or, or MS or, or rheumatoid arthritis, um, or even just the general older people, older population that, that need some assistance with their pills. I mean, it was so simple and the way that it took off was unbelievable. And I posted the original video back in December. Within a week, we had our first prototype. And now, like I said, we're up to version six. Um, and the most incredible thing about all this Montel is that the, the, the original people who helped created it, and I credit, you know, Brian Aldridge and of course, David Exler for the work that they've done. They've, dis they've decided uh, to, to to patent and to create this, but to keep it as a public domain, meaning anybody mm -hmm. who wants it right now, they can download the specs and print it for themselves. Wow. And uh, 
and 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 they're gonna you know they've ultimately you know pill bottles will be produced mass produced but it's gonna be the promise is to keep it at cost and that every pill bottle sold another pill bottle would be donated to someone in need um absolutely incredible how this all took off it started with a simple video that went viral and then brian's video and response went viral and then david's video and response went viral and we've got the same video in three different channels spread out all over the world so it's incredible really is that's great man i would say that right there that that alone must inspire so many people you know how do your fans inspire you my friend you know when they tell me uh things of course fans they inspire me i always say inspiration is a two-way street when they when they leave comments or when they tell me things like hey you know i did something for the first time because I saw you do something and then let didn't let that stop you. Um, you know, I, I I know I will never I will never f- completely feel or or know the impact that I've made um, out there because many people are just silent and, and and they're doing their thing. But but the ones that that have made the the comments tells me that I'm doing something right. And and when I say inspiration is a two way street, is that they're getting inspiration from me, but in return. Because I know I'm doing something right that's helping somebody else. I always say if I'm helping one person, just one person, it would all be worth it. But to know that all these people are providing the comments, it, I'm, I'm just so happy that, that it's, it's, it's a give and take relationship. Um, and because I'm, I know I'm doing something right, I'm just going to keep on doing it. Because it's not only helping me mentally, physically, I'm helping others as well. You know, you've you've accomplished so much, my friend. I mean, really, I I, I can't um, pick one thing myself. But if you, what what what's the the one thing that that stands out in your mind? What's your, you know, most of your your favorite? What are you what are you most proud of accomplishing? You know, I, I think my the one thing that I'm most proud of is is the fact that my wife and I have raised so much money for research. Um, you know, and I mean. All these physical feats are great, uh, but at the same time, you know, I'm I'm, it, I'm I'm inspiring others to move. But how am I going to use my platform and and, and my craft, right? And in this case, is it's using physical activity. How can I use that? Continue to use that to make uh, my situation better. And uh, you know, serving on the board of the patient council board, the Michael J. Fox Foundation, I, I always want to set set that example of. You know, um, we can we can spread more awareness. We can be our own advocates, and we can still raise money to push our agenda forward and trying to trying to get closer to that finish line. So, you know, throughout all this, I think um, it's it's no easy feat for anybody to raise any type of money. But my wife and I have raised over five hundred thousand dollars, and we're going to keep going. And 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 I'm extremely proud of that of of, of the things that we're able to do. And and, and it's not just it's not just all asking people for money, right? We're, you know, we've created events, we've created, uh, um, you know, t-shirts and things like that, everything within the name of, of uh, raising money. So um, I'm really proud of, I'm really proud of the, the, the work that we've done in the, in, in, in the Parkinson's community. Proud of you too, my friend. I'm telling you, really, really proud of you. Now, you know, I, I help people out there understand that, you know, every day is not the perfect day. I mean, every day is not, you know, roses and butterflies. No. What do you do when you're having one of those off days? You know, I here's here's the one thing people ask me that all the time, right? 
and and I'll go back to these these videos that I share on TikTok and, and on Instagram. People are only seeing that 60 second slice into my day. What they're not seeing is that 40% of my day, 40% of the, of the time that I'm awake, I'm essentially sitting around doing nothing because my body isn't allowing me to do much. But even in situations like that, even when I have, I actually have days where the entire day I can't do much. Um, even in those situations, I know that I'm not going to be able to perform my best, but I n- also know that I need to get up and I need to get myself into that gym. I need to get myself you know, up and moving and walking around and keeping my body movement uh, moving. Um, even though I realize that I'm not going to be doing it as well as I might, I might be able to. So it's really having that discipline of continuously pushing your body um, is, is, you know, no matter how well you're able to do it or not, you just got to keep doing it. Um, number And three, because it, it, it teaches me something. It really teaches me that if I ever get into a situation where I'm in an airport or I'm getting into a situation where I'm out and about with my family and I hit one of these off episodes, right? By pushing myself when I'm at home, having these off episodes, I know what my body's capable of when I'm out there in the public. So that if I need to get myself to safety, if I need to get myself to, to a place where I can be safe, I can do it. Um, so even in these periods of off times, I, I still continue to push myself. I, I try to do things. I know it's hard. I know it, your body doesn't want you to, 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 to do it, but um, you got to have that mental discipline to be able to say, get up, do something, even if it's just a little bit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, if there was one thing, one other thing you'd like to, to tell people, because again, you know, a lot of times people wallow in wallowing. I say it this way. It's like, you know, you get you get positive reinforcement out of wallowing in your muck, you know, because people walk over. So oh, I feel so bad for you. And you at least get a touch or, you know, you get the person who comes up and looks at you with concern. And some people seem to enjoy that wallowing. You know, maybe you can explain to people that, you know, you get just as much joy out of the response from not being a wallower, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and, and what you're saying, I can completely relate, relate to because, you know, when, especially when you're, when you're wallowing in, in your own self-pity, uh, those who love you are going to come up to you, regardless of, of what you say, regardless of how hard you, you push, try to push them away. Those who love you would come in um, and, and give you that touch and give you that attention. And you feel better. But now imagine when you share your story, when you, when, when you're when you're out there and, and you widen that net, right? Um, not only are other people able to do the same, but you're able to do the same for 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 other people. Imagine how good it feels when when someone touches you, and now you have the opportunity to touch someone else. And that that feeling itself is just as good, if not better, than when someone touches you. So reaching out and helping others is is it's even more, I think, of a of of a of a feel good situation than when someone helps you out. Well, what's next, my friend? What what do you what do you want to do next? What is next? You know, I I always say that Parkinson's, you know, gave it was, it was a diagnosis that's going to be ever changing in my life, and that's how I, I'm going to live 
moving forward is I'm going to keep making changes that's going to adapt to the changes that Parkinson's throw at me. Um, what is next for me is whatever is I need to do to stay ahead of my disease. Um, you know, and if I'm not progressing, that means I'm winning because it is a progressive disease, right? If I'm not progressing this year, then I'm doing something right and I'm going to keep on doing it. But, you know, as far as personal challenges is concerned, you know, I've broken world records. I've, I've set, you know, personal records. I've done all these things, but there's one thing I haven't done yet, which is finish and finish that obstacle course on American Ninja Warrior. So I think <laughs> if they give me the opportunity for one more shot, I'm going to, that's, 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 that's what's next for me. Well, we're going to be rooting for you, my friend. Jimmy, thank you so much for being a part of Free Thinking with Montel today, my friend. I, I can't tell you, thank you enough. I think that everybody who's looked in and tuned in today will walk away a better person than they were before they started today. So thank you, sir. Keep up the good work. And you know you always have a home here on Free Thinking with Montel. Anytime you want to talk about something, anytime you just want to come and chop it up a little bit about motivating people, come on over here. We'd love to have you, okay? I love it. I love it. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, Montel. So kiss those kids, kiss the wife. Much love to you guys. Stay safe, stay healthy. We'll see you soon, okay? And All you right. guys keep tuning in to Free Thinking with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Free Thinking with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback, so please send us your comments. Mm -hmm.